This morning, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, this idea that Jesus had to suffer and die before entering his glory really is, is counterintuitive. You know, when I say counterintuitive, something that's intuitive is you can see the truthfulness of it by observation or experience. Something that's counterintuitive is contrary to what you experience or what you understand. So uh, an example would be you know, the world being round or somewhat round. You know, our experience, when you look on the water, it's flat. You know, when, you, when you drive across the Midwest, it's flat. I know there are hills and valleys, but generally speaking, it, there's a flatness to the world. Now, uh, the world is round. I, I know we may still have some flat thinkers in here right now that are still fighting for flat earth, but, but it really is, it is really quite round. But, but it, it's not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. Another example would be the sun. You know, the idea that it rises in the east and it sets in the west, it goes through the sky, you know, it looks like the sun's moving. So, so for thousands of years, we thought the, the sun revolved around the earth. But no, in fact, we go around. We, the earth circles around the sun at about 67,000 miles per, per second. And so uh, 60,000 miles per hour, that, that's about 18 and a half miles per second. So in the short introduction, we've traveled about 332 miles. It, your hair's not blowing, though. It, it doesn't seem, you wouldn't pick that up by intuition. It seems counterintuitive to us. Well, so does the idea that suffering must precede glory. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to us. When we think about suffering, we're, we want to do anything to avoid it. We don't see any good in it. And yet here we have this counterintuitive truth that Jesus is telling his disciples, suffering must take place before glory. In other words, we need to understand. Now, that's why we jump out of the Genesis and every, uh, you know, every Easter week we jump out of the text so that we can kind of meditate and think about the suffering and death of our Lord. That's why Palm Sunday, uh, Thursday, Kevin will be preaching on the Lord's Supper. Dalton will be preaching on Friday on the last words of Jesus, you know, when he died from the cross. It, we want to think about the death so that we understand the glory. And John Calvin said this years ago. He said, all ministers of the word who desire that their preaching may be profitable, so a guy right here, ought to be exceedingly careful that the glory of his resurrection should always be exhibited by them in connection with the humiliation of his death. You cannot understand the glory that's to come if we don't understand the death that has preceded it. And so we always take this week and consider the death of our Lord again, the cross, the suffering. We consider that so that we better understand the glory. So that's what we want to do today. Peter's words 
uh, and, and Jesus, that interaction between Jesus and Peter, that, that he is going to suffer and die. Jesus gives a corrective to what is our default, which is let's choose the path of power and glory rather than suffering and struggle. So we'll be looking at that. Three ways I want to look at the cross of suffering is, first, the cross was uh, necessary. The cross was necessary. Uh, secondly, the cross is a place of stumbling. The cross is a place we, we struggle with it. And then ultimately, the cross is the road to glory. I mean, there is no glory apart from the cross. So we have to get that down. So first, though, uh, look at the cross as necessary. Look with me at 21. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Now, look at the, te- look at the beginning phrase there, from that time. Now, that's kind of like a, a visual marker for us. That's like if you're seeing a movie and the scene changes. You know, Matthew wants us to know we're leaving a Uh, a public ministry now, and we're moving to the private teaching of the disciples. So there's a scene change. From that time, he says, Jesus began to show. So he's introducing new revelation. He's introducing a new truth about himself. Now, it helps to know that in the passage prior to this, in 16, uh, 12 to 20, Jesus um, had heard from Peter. Peter spoke in that passage, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're the seed of Abraham. On you, the promises. It was a magisterial confession. Peter got it. Even Jesus says, that's been revealed to you by God. Peter speaks of the glory of the Messiah. But notice what Jesus does here. He says, from that time, after hearing Peter's glorious confession of Jesus as the glorious Christ, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem to suffer. In other words, Jesus is bringing about a correction, a new revelation. Peter, you have it, but not all of it. You have the glory, but you don't have the suffering. And that's what Jesus began to teach them. He began to reveal, I'm not coming with pomp, pageantry, and power. I'm coming in weakness and suffering. I'm not coming to rule and reign. I'm coming, I'm coming to, to serve and to die. I'm not coming to, to wear a crown. I'm, I'm coming to bear a cross. He's introducing something radical to them. Now you say, well, is this the first time he's spoken about his death? Well, yes, in these explicit terms. He alluded to it in chapter 9 and chapter 15, but here he's very explicit. And he uses a little Greek word when he says, he says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. It's by necessity. He has to go. He has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. And this doesn't mean he was forced to go. He's willing. He's desirous. But he has to go by necessity. He knows he has to come. So Peter had it right, kind of. But he didn't see this part of it. And Jesus said, no, it's necessary. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, why? I mean, it kind of begs the question, why did he have to die? I mean, God could do anything he wants, right? I mean, couldn't he have done it some other way? Couldn't he have, couldn't he have saved the world some other way? There has to be a different or better way than for the very Messiah sent to save to have to suffer first. And say, no, there is no other way. 
And I want to give you four reasons why I think there's no other way. And number one, it's because God planned it this way. This, this cross that he would bear is exactly what God spoke about. Think about it for a minute. I mean, in the scriptures, Jesus speaks about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 49, 50, 53, the suffering servant must die, right? Like a sheep led to its shears, like a sheep to be slaughtered. Or you think about Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross, that he's forsaken by God, or Psalm 69. So, so God said in his word that the Messiah would have to suffer. But, but not just saying in his word. You see it in the, in the redemptive story of the Old Testament. The greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And how are the people saved when the, when the angel of, of God came over and, and brought death to the firstborn? It was the blood of the lamb. I mean, a lamb had to suffer. And then think about the sacrificial service. Repeat it year after year after year. These lambs had to die in place of people. And then, so it's not a surprise that I mentioned last week when John the Baptist said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lambs don't take away the sins without shedding their blood. So you see this movement. We saw this in Genesis 22 last week, that instead of Isaac, a lamb will be sacrificed. So you see that Jesus coming to suffer, it was there. It was there. But even Jesus says it for us in Luke 24. He says to them, Oh, foolish one, this is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. They weren't sure who he was. They were discouraged because the Savior had died. And Jesus says, Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them all in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We don't want to be the foolish ones. We don't want to be slow to heart. It's by necessity. In other words, Jesus wants us to know, and clearly his disciples, that his death was not by accident. Evil didn't get the upper hand. He didn't die because Israel failed. We've got to shift to plan B. Okay, Jesus is kind of an alternative plan. No, it was, it was by necessity because God had said it was going to be. God had planned. From the bruising of the heel of the seed of Adam, who would crush the head of the serpent, it was planned. My Messiah will die for the sins of his people. But secondly, it's necessary because it satisfies God's justice. Listen, we're, <clears throat> we're all here. We're creatures of God. We've been made by God in his image, and yet we live in absolute defiance. Maybe, maybe not antagonistically against God. Some are antagonistic. Some of us are just apathetic. Some of us are just ignorant. But, but we live these self-determined, these self-committed lives without giving even thought to God. If God is the creator and he's giving us life and breath and all things, and many of us have spent many of our lives just not even thinking about the character of God, never thanking him, right? Just taking what we have as a product of our own hands and our own ingenuity, even though we didn't choose the place we'd be born, we didn't choose the color of our hair, we didn't choose the height of our body. All these things have just been given to us. And we've all lived... At one point, in these acts of defiance against the very creator of life, we've 
earned God's legitimate judgment. And, and, and justice has to be served. God just can't forgive. I mean, justice is served. You and I know that intuitively when something is done against us that we want justice. You hear victims who uh, finally the perpetrator has been caught and, and uh, they say, well, I feel justice has been served. There's a sense of satisfaction with that. And so God, so Jesus had to die to serve justice. What do I mean by this? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, that God brought forth Jesus as a propitiation. It's a big fancy word for Jesus is the one who was brought forth to bear the judgment of God for our sins. So our sins were upon him. The justice of God came upon Jesus. And the reason that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation is so that God would be both just in punishing sin but he would be the justifier in forgiving those with faith in the Son, so that now through faith in Christ, his suffering is instead of me. So it satisfies the justice of God. That means we don't have to carry our sins. We don't have to worry about the debt load that we've created. What will it be on that final day? It has been dealt with. That's why Jesus said, I must do it. I must suffer, otherwise they will not be forgiven. Thirdly, it displays the grace of God. I mean, can you deny that a person who will lay down their life doesn't love you? I mean, do people lay down their lives without that love for the person? In Ephesians chapter 2, we read that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive with Christ. It's by grace we have been saved. But notice what he says. He says, This is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. This immeasurable riches of God's grace can only be seen perfectly by the cross that Jesus Christ bore for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, what greater act of love can be displayed then the very own Son of God coming down to save a people by putting himself in harm's way to save them. Charles Spurgeon comments on this. He says, The hill of comfort is the hill of Calvary. The hill of consolation is built with the wood of the cross. The temple of heavenly blessing is founded on the spear which pierced his side. No scene in sacred history ever gladdens the soul like Calvary's tragedy. Friends, this is incredible grace of God. When we begin to wonder, does he really love me? How do I know? Do I really know that for sure? You look to the cross, look to Calvary. He's done that to display these immeasurable graces for us. That through the ages... I'm talking not like in 15 years, you'll remember. I'm talking forever we'll be looking at the sun and thanking him and recognizing God's love is beyond our ability to trace out. But then last, another reason is that it actually achieves salvation. It secures salvation. Remember, the offering of Jesus Christ wasn't to make salvation a potential It was to make it actual. Jesus' death rendered our own spiritual deaths inoperable. doesn't mean we're not going to physically die, but we'll never be separated from the love of God. Right? That beautiful passage in Romans 8, 
Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus because he died for us. And Jesus was on the cross and the thief said, would you remember me? He didn't say, hey, your, your odds are really increasing on this one. Hey, probability of you getting saved is really going up. No, he said, today you'll be with me. He knew his death would save. His death put our death to death. His death saves. Friends, do you see the necessity of the cross? Can you say with Paul that I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? Friends, this is not, this is not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. To see this death as a victory for us. Some people have taken it. You know, many of us just kind of, we grow ambivalent or we grow familiar with it. Some take it more antagonistically. Frederick Nietzsche, he wrote this about what I'm speaking. He said, look at whom they worship. Look at this God whom they worship. How foolish, how imbecilic to follow one who died. And then to claim that death is victory. There is foolishness and there is foolishness. There is madness and there is madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic This is a pathetic deity, and he's followed by a pathetic people. Now, that's antagonism. But let me remind you, apathy. Apathy can be as destructive to our belief in the necessity. By the cross, we're forgiven. By the cross, we're reconciled. By the cross, our shame is removed. By the cross, we have hope and reconciliation with God. Let me give you another quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Would I know the fullness and completeness of the salvation God has provided for sinners? Where shall I see it most distinctly? Shall I go to the general declarations in the Bible about God's mercy? Shall I rest in the general truth that God is a God of love? Oh, no. I will look at the crucifixion at Calvary. I find no evidence like that. I find no balm for the sore conscience and troubled heart like the sight of Jesus dying for me on the accursed tree. There I see the full payment that has been made for my enormous debts. The curse of the law which I have broken has come down on one who there suffered in my stead. The demands of that law are satisfied. Payment has been made for me even to the uttermost farthing. It will be not required twice over. Ah, I might sometimes imagine I was too bad to be forgiven. My own heart sometimes whispers that I'm too wicked to be saved. But I know in my better moments that that is all my foolish unbelief. I read in answer to my doubts in the blood of Calvary. I feel sure that there is a way to heaven for the vilest of men when I look at the cross. Friends, this is where our hope is. Our hope is in one who has come. And I'll tell you, if you see the beauty of the cross, you know the Spirit has touched you or is touching you. Because you won't see that by human eyes. You won't pick that up through intuition. It is the Spirit of God opening us to see, yes, we need the cross. So, so here, the first thing we see is the necessity of the cross. Folks, this is the mark of our, you can't understand Christianity and you can't understand Christ if you don't understand this. 
So if, you, if you're perplexed right now, please speak to a member of this church. Come forward. But we, we want to make sure this is abundantly clear, that the cross is absolutely necessary. Okay, the second thing we see is that the cross is a stumbling block. It is. It's necessary, but it's hard to, that's why I'm saying it's counterintuitive. You don't just pick this up. Look with me at 22. In 22, he says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So you just imagine Peter. Now, now Peter's such an easy target sometimes, isn't he? I mean, Peter is just, he's bold, he's impetuous. He grabs Jesus, brings him to the side, and begins to rebuke him. To Peter, this is, God, this is just anathema. This is craziness. We're establishing a kingdom. You're healing people. You're feeding people. Everything's going great. You can't die. The whole plan will just collapse. So he takes him aside and rebukes him. And that word for rebuke is the same word used when Jesus rebuked the waves on the Sea of Galilee. It's the same word Jesus used to rebuke the demons in the demoniac. So you see him really sternly rebuking him. Now let's give Peter a little bit of grace here, right? Notice what Jesus says. He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Now in Peter's mind, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where the temple is. It's where the people of God are. This is where God is. He's established his presence. The, the very own Messiah from God can't die in the city of God. So you can just imagine the confusion. But not just that, he, he's going to die by the hands of the chief priests, elders, and, and uh, scribes. Well, that can't be. They're the spiritual elites. They're the ones that are supposed to show us who the Messiah is. So you can imagine the struggle. See, the Jew at the time thought in very temporal, earthly terms that the Messiah would come and establish an earthly reign, destroying the reign of the Romans, vanquishing their rule, and now Israel on the earth would be great and mighty. But it was much more in the geopolitical vision that they had at that time. So you can kind of understand. But here's the warning for us. Peter's in a place of preeminence, and he missed it. It shows us a true disciple can actually be confused on the nature of the cross. We can stumble over the cross. In what ways do we stumble over the cross now? Let me give you a few examples, I think, are ways that we can stumble over the glory of the cross. Number one would be we can tend to dilute it. We dilute it. We add things to it. Uh, we, lo we love the cross. We believe the cross. But, but, you know, our moral behavior, our moral performance, our increasing sanctification secures his peace for me. So, so it kind of is, yeah, I, I'm holding on to the cross, but I'm also changing. You know, I, I'm also getting better. And, and we begin to look more at what we're doing, reading the Bible, going to church, praying. Those are all good God-given gifts to help us love God. But they don't add to the value or the necessity of the cross. The good things do them. But when you look to yourself, it's the cross alone, not the cross and. Or, or perhaps we add to it our conservative values, the way we vote, the way we teach our children, the foods we eat. These are the things we do that we look at just ever cautious. Well, they're, good. they're with the cross. It's the cross and those things. Or maybe it's theological acumen. You know, you're very reformed. Or you have a very tight theology. 
where you really understand all the answers to the difficult problems of the scriptures. And we think it's the cross and theological awareness. Friends, this dilutes, or even if we conceptualize or spiritualize the cross, it's kind of that the cross is just kind of an example of God's love. We love. No, no, no. The cross is wood. It's a body. It's flesh, blood, nails. It's death for us. So, so anything we add to it will dilute it and make it less necessary for us. We also can replace the cross. Uh, replacing the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, we look at the cross and, and we see it as a glorious means to an end, but the end is a good life now. The end is victory now. The, the end of the cross. Now that Jesus has suffered and he's died, now I can live a very good life. I can pray and my prayers will be answered. Ask for healing and I'm healed. And, and, and the, kind of our prosperity teachers are, are these kind of folks here. We begin to think that now that I'm a Christian, everything should go smoothly. That if I start to suffer, I'm like, God, what's going on? Come on, whose side are you on? You know, we begin to look at God in contempt when we begin to suffer. You know that you're kind of you know, replacing the cross. You're expecting a life without suffering. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote about these theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. And the theologians of glory, he said this about them. The theologians of glory, they do not know that God is hidden in suffering. God's hidden in suffering. Theologians of glory prefer works to suffering, glory to a cross, strength to weakness. He says theologians of the cross, by contrast, see the cross as revealing the fundamental nature of God's involvement in the world this side of heaven. God's most involved in our suffering on this side of heaven. That's, that takes a lot of faith to believe. You know, this idea of replacing this can be victory. And our cultural warriors, those of us who, you know, are seeing the culture and going down, 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 and we've got to arm, 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 up. No, no, no. In this world, you will have trouble. There are many tribulations you have to enter. There are many tribulations you go through to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, we have to understand that we don't want to replace the cross with this kind of victory and triumphalism. No, the church has always suffered, and we will suffer because suffering precedes glory. The third thing that I think we do in terms of stumbling is we diminish the cross. We can diminish the need for the cross by looking at our own moral evolvement, that we're getting better. Uh, we, can, we, can diminish, we can diminish the cross by not understanding the radical depravity of human life, that we want to find something good. We have the potential. We have the spark. We just have to find the right experience, the right teaching, and then we'll get on our way and we can reach our full potential. And we minimize the nature of the cross. Another way that we diminish the cross is by, and this is a real nuance here, substituting hurt or trauma for sin. We live in a therapeutic age. We live in a therapeutic age where we're spending more time spending on trauma and hurt and suffering rather than we do the source of all that. And, and here's what happens. There are legitimate victims, and there is legitimate trauma, but it's becoming so spread 
It's uh, becoming so far spread that it actually delegitimizes those who suffer. But we don't want to, we don't want to, it's a nuance here because people are suffering. But when we spend more time on healing the hurt rather than forgiving the sin, we're moving in an unhealthy direction. Because if sin is the root issue of life, we need a savior. If hurt is a root issue of life, then we need a therapist. So we want to make sure and not diminish the nature of the cross by forgetting the radical nature of sin that dwells within us that is ultimately the source of our struggle and our pain. So friends, we don't want to dilute it. We don't want to replace it. We don't want to diminish it. We want to delight in it. We want to delight. We want to say, yes, it's necessary that he goes there. And we want him to go there because if he doesn't, I'm damned. And you're damned if he doesn't do it. It's that necessary. We want to be like Paul who in Acts 17, Luke records, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. A lot of things we can disagree on in the Christian life, church government, baptism, and J.C. Rowell says, and we can still arrive safely in heaven, but we cannot miss this. We don't want to stumble over the cross. I know it's foolishness to the world. Paul tells us that in the first chapter of Corinthians. It's foolishness to the world, but the cross is the wisdom of God. And that's why it's not intuitive. Again, if you see the cross as beautiful, that's the spirit of God revealing that to you. So we see two things. We see that the cross is a necessary means for our salvation, reconciliation with God, and we see that the cross is a point of stumbling. But then third, I want to show you that the cross leads to glory. Look with me at 23. He says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, what's remarkable about this is here Jesus uh, Jesus is turning to Peter. Now, when it says he turns, uh, the implication is he's talking to all the disciples at this point because they probably all were indignant over this idea that the Messiah should suffer. But he does say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Why? I mean, just prior, he was the rock upon which the church would be built. Now he's a rock of stumbling. Why would he call him Satan? Because Peter was trying to divert Jesus from taking the path of suffering and taking the easier path of glory. Just like Satan in Matthew 4 tried to divert him from suffering by saying, just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you everything you want. It's an easier road. It's an alternative way. A lot better for you. And so he sees and he hears in Peter's words Satan's voice. Jesus knew well what the horrors were ahead of him. But he had, set him, he had set his mind on the things of God. Peter had set his mind on the things of man. What does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that we're going to achieve the best purposes through our human ingenuity, through our power, through the things that we can do, through our human self-reformation, that we don't realize our absolute inability. No, we're going to just put more, put more grit into it. To set your mind on the things of God is to recognize that God, in his own mysterious way, will draw glory through suffering. And Jesus knew this. He knew that death led to life. He knew that suffering led to glory. How do I know that? Because notice what he says. 
He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised. He knew the order that was there. And be raised. Notice that's a passive tense. Jesus was going to be raised by God. God was going to vindicate this idea of suffering leads to glory by raising him from the dead. This is exactly what we see in Philippians 2 uh, when Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? Through that suffering, every tongue will confess. It leads to glory. So this suffering leads to glory. But it's not just for Jesus. It's for us too. Why do I say that? Well, because in the very next two verses, he says, if anyone, so now he's not just speaking to the 12, he's speaking to us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he's showing us that as we follow Jesus, we too are going to have to walk a similar road. But it's leading to glory. We have to understand this now. It's hard to, you know, when you're hanging off the cliff to begin learning lessons of rock climbing is a really tough go. We want to learn it now. We want to be thinking about it now. That, that the life that we live, living... I'm not talking about suffering for doing wrong. Peter encourages us not to do that. Suffering for doing right. Now, many of us want to avoid suffering, right? We don't want to go on a mission trip. It's way out of my comfort zone. Uh, I can't give any more. I can't afford it. Uh, I don't want to do this ministry. I've never had any experience doing that. I wouldn't even think of sharing the gospel with a neighbor. I mean, they could reject me and I could ruin a good relationship. Uh, the, we avoid suffering and struggles walking out faith all the time. And, and what he's saying is, no, follow me. Follow me. Yes, it, there's a road of suffering, but there is glory. And we see it in the one who is now seated at the right hand of God. He is our leader. He's our captain. He's the pastor of this church. And, and we follow him. You know, Paul says, I don't consider the, the present day sufferings to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. So friends, even this week, even this week, we, we want to think on that his cross was necessary. It is a stumbling block, but it does lead to glory. So maybe even this week, grab a brother or sister in this church. How can we, how can we walk in obedience to God? with joy. How can we even embrace a road that may be marked? It may not be. You can't, we can't worry about tomorrow. I don't want you worrying that someone else's suffering may be your suffering. God apportions out all that we need so that when we see him, we'll be like him. But let me encourage you to consider the road that Jesus walked, particularly as we come up to Easter. Uh, as we consider his death, and his suffering, 
uh, we will find next Sunday to be much sweeter. So let, let's just take a moment and ask God for grace and wisdom uh, that we might understand this better and, and walk in a manner that is following him, denying ourselves and taking up uh, our cross and following. So, and then I'll pray for us in a moment. Father, would you open our eyes to see the absolute need we have, that it's necessary for the Messiah to save us by suffering and dying. And then, Father, melt our hearts. Those of us burdened by sin and shame and guilt, melt our hearts and give us the assurance and the peace that comes to know that he has paid for the full debt load of my sin. And then, and then fill our hearts with joy that we will be with you, that there will be glory. Even the suffering that we face will lead and produce glory. And Father, I pray for those that are even among us that are uncertain to these things. God, leave them with a dissatisfaction and, a, and an uncertainty until they trace these things out with us. Father, we, we're mindful of the time. We, are, we have come from dust and we return to dust. Our, our days are brief. They're short, Father. Uh, may we not presume for many, many years. And Father, I, I pray particularly for those that are young, those that are in their teens and early 20s, and this idea of planning for the greatest life they can imagine, and yet here they've heard this. Lord, grant them the grace to see the value and the wisdom and the beauty of this. And God, help us who are older, who, who know this life cannot produce the joy we need. Help us to be verbal and loving and encouraging to them. Uh, to follow hard after Christ is to have a glorious life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.